Thought Nerd. I am the Uneven Flow, and this is our latest episode of Fine, you pick. I am not alone. I am joined by my co-host, Abby. Hello, I'm Abby. You have selected Casino Royale from 2006 as this week's film. Why is that? Because my last pick for my Fine, You Pick pick was Die Another Day, the James Bond film that immediately precedes Casino Royale 2006. And I especially, especially picked Casino Royale because it's written by the same people as Die Another Day. And Die Another Day was not a good Bond movie. Whereas Casino Royale, I think, is probably up there as, if not people's favorite Bond movie, but certainly one of the best. It's certainly one of the better ones. Also, that was more use of the word pick than a Lamar Jackson playoff game. So congratulations on that record. But secondly, you mentioned this is by the same writers. It sort of is. There is a third writer added to this who we are not going to talk about, despite being Canadian. Uh, we're just not going to, we're in, he, he, let's just uh, not talk about him. So you can look it up on Wikipedia, yes. a cursory glance at the guy who is a different guy than the two guys who wrote Die Another Day. Once you get to the end of his first Wikipedia blurb, you'll, you'll kind of figure out why we don't want to give him a lot of screen time. However, I still kind of think that it's more these two dudes who wrote Die Another Day than it is not because as we kind of found out it is sort of the same movie as die another day just elevated a Maybe lot not die another day but it follows very much the bond formula this film sees daniel craig in his first outing as james bond it also features james bond in what is supposed to be his first real mission as a double o In this, he is tasked with tracking down the head of a terrorist organization. And he's played by Mads Mikkelsen. It is Le Chiffre. Bond initially gets his first two kills, which gives him the double O status in the opening we see, followed by his continued investigation of this group. And this eventually leads him to Le Chiffre as the man behind a series of terrorist events dedicated to essentially just making money. He is a banker. The villain in this film is actually a banker. And Bond has to essentially bankrupt him even more by entering a high-stakes poker game against Le Chiffre. What's interesting to me is Bond and this villain and all of their interactions is the first two acts of a three-act film. Mm. The third act is essentially a denouement in which... It's related to the first two parts of the film, but it's also setting up another film. So it feels, it feels a little bit weirdly detached to me. A little bit. It sees Bond and Vesper Lind, who is played by Eva Green... And the fallout, essentially, of Bond winning, he resigns his position with the intention of living a life with Vesper Lind. This does not go well. Vesper, it turns out, is yet another MI6 hire whose background was not really checked. 
same movie, same movie. MI6, not big into background checks, apparently. In any case, she is revealed to be the spy from earlier events, such as the poker game initially not going Bond's way. And that is essentially the movie. There is an awful lot of Bond tropes in this. There's a lot of travel. What I really like is how it's all framed. It's very different from most Bond movies, especially Die Another Day. What's funny to me is this movie has an 11 minute longer runtime. That's it. Die Another Day feels like Die Another Day is the fast food-esque Bond. Yeah. Of that era where you eat it and then you just forget about it immediately. It's bubblegum for the mind, Die Another Day is, whereas this is the thinking man's James Bond, yeah, I would say. Yeah, and I really <laughs> want to watch Quantum of Solace, despite the fact that there's a part in my brain that goes, no, don't, because it is an inferior film combined with, to be quite honest, it makes this movie a lesser product because of some of the twists, but I don't want to get into that. In any case, this movie, though, we said it early on, it's less quippy than the Pierce Brosnan Bonds, despite being the same writers, but it's still very intelligent. It's still, it's not quippy, it's just smarter sort of comebacks. Yeah, there's a lot of, this is supposed to be James Bond's introduction, if you will. It's it's the movie that explains how he came to be. So we're seeing his character essentially as James Bond right from the beginning, but also develop into the James Bond that that we know from the past and that will be coming up in the future as well. So again, you mentioned a fantastic cold open, black and white, and it was shot for black and white. They didn't just... Remove the color, yeah, which is something a lot of movies do. It, it honestly, I think that's the best looking part of the film. It's so crisp in how the grays and the black and white meld together. The grays, is this the X-Files episode? Oh, no. sorry. No, we already did two episodes on the oh, X-Files. Oh, yeah. Why, you should go listen to them right now. You're right. The cold open works really well. It's one of my favorite Bond's cold opens, too. It's also so much, I don't want to say slower. It's not. There's still quite a bit of action to it, and it still moves crisply. It's just, it's not the over-the-top stuff we got used to, where Bond is jumping out of a plane, and then suddenly he's, you know, in a hover boat or whatever they were, chase. And then, yeah. you know, it's not a a combination of these gigantic stunts or set pieces. It's just Bond, we get flashbacks to Bond beating up a guy in a bathroom, and then he shoots his target without sort of the long monologue or anything like that. His, his target wants to begin a monologue, and Bond just shoots him in the head. It's not like a, a normal quote-unquote Bond movie, but it still shares all of the elements. Yeah, because we saw, again, in Die Another Day, we saw what a quote-unquote normal Bond movie had devolved slash evolved into, which is his bubblegum for the mind. You go there, you look at a screen, you're going to be, it's like jangling keys in front of a, a baby, you know? You're going to have a good time. I loved the graphics in this one. 
That's a quote of a review of Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, which is one of my favorites. That's what, when I watch some of the other Bond movies, that's what I think. I loved the graphics. Wow, look at those graphics. Yeah, so there's the cold open. There's a bunch of sequences, though. You said just now that you thought the cold open was one of the best shot parts of the movie. I will raise you one, potentially. One of the elements I wasn't looking forward to rewatching in Casino Royale was something we talked about with Die Another Day, and I sort of hinted at in terms of today's or more recent action movies, which they're starting to get out of again. And that is the shaky cam shots and mm. the quick cuts for fighting. I had this weird memory that Casino Royale was filled with them. It has them, but it's not overused at all. And in particular, one of the sequences that I remembered that was frankly a million times better than I had in my head was the initial parkour sequence, mm -hmm. which oh, I know you're going to want to talk about. But, oh, boy. But that sequence contains a lot less cuts than I remembered. It took this span of weeks to film, and boy, does it show. It's brilliantly shot. It, it doesn't have any of the trappings I thought it would, which is the cuts are so frequent or the shaky cam is frequent enough to the point that you cannot tell where one character is in relation to the other, which again, I mentioned during Die Another Day is an issue with a lot of action movies over the early 2000s and a good portion of the mid 2000s that the action is not mid frame. The camera moves too much. The Marvel movies, unfortunately, are pretty guilty of this during fight I was thinking sequences. of the Marvel movies, too. I was thinking of that, too, when we were talking about it, watching the movie. Positionally, they're not always that bad, but they frequently have kind of quick cuts. It's also why I think a lot of the Marvel movies, like Captain America, Winter Soldier, stand out. Because it doesn't do that. It doesn't have the quick cuts as much. The camera is moved back for a lot of the action sequences. The Marvel TV shows, in particular Daredevil, do the action brilliantly. There is occasionally quick cuts, but there's also a lot of one camera takes. And it's beautifully shot. This is closer to that. It is beautifully shot. The parkour sequences are wonderfully done. It's weird because this kind of kicked off. A lot of that, this movie did it really well. I really liked that sequence. I don't, again, yeah, I had this weird version in my head of what it would be like, but going back to it now, no, it holds up really well. It doesn't have any of the tropes that it would accidentally create. And I guess it helps that you're creating them, right? So this movie has a lot of firsts. The black and white cold open where... Again, he's, he's, he's got to have two kills to be a double O. That's what you need for your promotion and your 4% raise every year. You need two kills. He's got one of them, and then he'll have a second. There's a quip in it that is one of, it's, it's one of my favorite sort of James Bond periods of time in any of the movies. But there's a quip in it, but it happens after the guy's already dead. So he's just, he's just saying it for himself. He's, he's not doing it because everybody has to be quippy at each other. Even later on when we get into Le Chiffre, 
played by Meds Mikkelsen. They're they're quippy, but they are quips that are in service to each other. And it's it's not like it was in Die Another Day, where it's just everybody has to have a cool line all the time. Like they, I'm not going to say that they speak like human beings in Casino Royale because they don't. There's like a whole bunch of there's that scene on the train with him and Vesper yeah. where they're first meeting each other, and and you know it's oh you've uh, your your beauty's a problem and your your slightly masculine clothes. Like excuse me, if that's slightly masculine clothes, sir, sir, excuse me. That kind of stuff sticks out like a sore thumb, I think. But the rest of the dialogue, they they do this whole like married couple thing. This the the part where he's got a tailored suit and he's he's you know asking her about it. It's great. Like that's a that's a that felt real. You mentioned this while we were watching the movie, but the Bond esque sequences with what is really in the end, just the womanizing aspects of mm. James Bond felt out of place. And that includes his pursuit or a lot of his pursuit with Vesper. There is a sequence early on where Bond, in this case, in a swimsuit, rises out of the water. Mm. And it's well done because it makes you feel like, okay, this is more of a modern Bond. We're going to get a little more beefcake than just the eye candy background female characters who are essentially there to look hot. The problem is we go into the background female characters who are essentially there to look hot as he seduces the, at the time, his targets, Alex Dimitrios's girlfriend, or sorry, his wife, actually. Yeah. I mean, we could be forgiven for not uh, not thinking those two got married in a church in front of a, a priest. Yeah. It, you know? It just felt out of place. And a mm -hmm. lot of the Vesper stuff did as well, too. The thing is why it works. And for me, why the relationship with Vesper worked was one of your favorite scenes, which is after Bond has eliminated two men who were seeking to kill Le Chiffre, or at least threaten him to get their money back because Le Chiffre is a banker who has been playing with other people's money because mm -hmm. of Bond's actions. Yeah. Who would do that in real life? Mm -hmm. Come on. Oh wait, because of Bond's actions, he loses their money and he's got to win it back at this poker game or else he go lose an arm or a lot more. In any case, he is threatened and as they're leaving they discover first of all there's a nice play on a scene that bugged me in die another day where they spot the earpiece that bond has while he's trying to cover up that he was in the hallway and knows what's going on he's making out with vesper they spawn it yeah. they attack him bond Same has to movie, kill them. just elevated yeah bond has to kill them and he kills them in front of vesper and this is her first time i guess Seeing dead bodies or somebody die, which come on, you just get used to. Oh, anyway. well, she's an accountant. Like, granted, she's an accountant for MI6, but yes. who didn't have to pass a bankrupt check at all. But there's the scene afterwards that you really liked and works really well, I think, for me, where she's in the shower, she's upset, she's fully clothed still, and Bond goes to her. It's interesting. There's a lot I like about this movie. 
So I have a tendency to bounce around, but that scene is an example of this. So I'll just bring it up now. The screenwriters in this movie and the director took a lot more of the suggestions of the actors mm. than Die Another Day, which frankly ignored most of Pierce Brosnan's issues with the film. So here, Daniel Craig was one of the ones who argued that Vesper should be fully clothed. She wouldn't have taken the time to get undressed and everything else and prepare for a shower if she was upset. Yeah, they wanted the the they wanted Vesper in that shower scene to be in her underwear. Yeah. But it it doesn't make sense and it's it's quite a bit more powerful when she just, you know, she's so traumatized, she just sort of trods back up to the room, heads right to the shower. And that's mm -hmm. just one of the examples. The other personal favorite of mine is just overall Craig thought that Bond should fail. And he does fail. In fact, this is the first Bond movie where he fails all of his objectives. He actually does not succeed any of his missions. He's supposed to bring in somebody alive. Nope. He's supposed to get win the poker game, get Le Chiffre on MI6 set. Nope. He's supposed to get the bunny back. Nope. Yeah, the, the girl that he, the wife of the one henchman. Gets killed. You know. We, yeah, we go back to see what happened to her afterwards. She gets to go to Torture Land. Well, she got to go to this, the, uh, the DQ fun zone. Sure. <laughs> where uh, she got to go to the DQ fan zone where she can just chill out and have a real good fun time. Hey, Chad, um, and MI6 is just there, incidentally, and they're putting something else in a, in a big... Big, big, big trash can. Yeah, she bag. went to a nice uh, farm, and she's she... fine. She's she's from Canada. You don't know her. So, Bond, and that was Craig's suggestion that Bond is not the omnipotent, great at everything. So to go all the way back to what we're talking about, the parkour scene, for example, Bond is not as good at parkour. He gets by with his smarts, and sometimes it's just brute force. There's a sequence where he runs through a wall instead of jumping up and going through a very small opening. So it's stuff like that where that's another difference, right? I mean, die another day. He challenges someone who is roughly an Olympic level swordsman at fencing and Bond just beats him. When is James Bond going to have time amongst the million other things he has to learn and do to take up fencing and be better than People, they, it just, it, it strained cred, credulity, if you will. Strained credulity. Yeah, Die Another Day Bond is essentially a superhero. He's a super yeah. spy. Casino Royale Bond is, there is an element of that, right? Because he's still jumping off cranes and, and stuff like that. But there is that aspect of they keep it human. They keep it within the realm of possibility that like this, okay, but also like, ooh, maybe he's not going to make that jump or maybe he's got to figure out another way around. How's he going to get out of this? There's a tension to this movie that is not present in the Die Another Days because we know where they're going to go. Die Another Day, die he another jumps day. into a rocket car for the first time and beats the villain who's been training on this thing for yep. all this time, beats his record immediately. He can just do everything. And yeah, there's a humanity to Craig. He also argued for Bond to be 
a little more human because it makes your audience feel the successes more than if you just succeed all of the time. It makes him feel like like a guy who could plausibly exist, not necessarily probably, but plausibly. So, you know, maybe, yeah, there's a, a really fit guy in his, his late 20s, early 30s who can run after one of the forerunners of the free running movement in Madagascar in that second kind of opening scene after the credits. He also chases down vehicles more than a couple of times in this, which is, uh, that's a little out there, but I'll allow it. Yeah, like that, there is, it is still a James Bond film, which I find unfortunate. I, I think I remember remarking to you while we were watching the stuff that it's like, it, there's no, there's no kind of reason for that to be there. Yeah, at times it's unfortunate and other times it works for its benefit though. Mm. So another example is close to the end or end of the second act, I should say. So Bond defeats, as we mentioned, Le Chiffre in the poker game. Le Chiffre kidnaps Vesper and there is a chase sequence. What I really liked in this is unlike a lot of sort of Bond movies, Bond is chasing after them in the vehicle. He's trying to catch up. And suddenly she's in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. I liked that. It's very different. He's got to swerve to avoid her. And then the car flips like, I think it was a Guinness World Record at the time. Yes. It flips like seven times. Yeah. And Bond is, that's when and Bond that's is taken. that's how they get captured. Yeah. Yeah, is taken hostage in this case. And. Because he was just in a car crash. Like he's going to need a second to recover. And it's that point you can nab him. In most of other Bond movies, he uses the cars, whatever the ability is that has been outlined earlier in the film, Chekhov's car usually yeah. gets used to magically fix the problem. Like, oh, it has an EMP pulse that'll shut down the car ahead. Oh, it has an oil slick. Oh, it has XX whatever. But it doesn't do that. It does. All the car has essentially is medical tools which do get used later on to help him when he's poisoned during the card game by the villain's girlfriend. But it doesn't have, it doesn't have a magic invisibility screen. It doesn't have a lot of the out there gadgets. The car in Die Another Day is almost a character in and of itself. The car in Casino Royale is just a car. It's just a, it's a nice car. It's a 1964 Aston Martini. Aston Martini? Aston Martinson. Aston, Aston a, Martini. It's a, yeah, sure. It's a drink. It's shaken. It's a, not it's a 1999 Pontiac Firebird. It's a nice car. It goes real fast, which is helpful, but it essentially just has a cooler glove box. It just has a couple of shelves, and there's not even that much in it. There's a gun, there's a defibrillator, and like two EpiPens. What else do you really need as a spy? I mean, realistically, that's that's what you're going to use and that's what you're going to need. I feel like the crown could have saved some money by maybe giving them, you know, a, a Toyota Tercel or something like that. But I suppose if you're going to go to the Casino Royale in Montenegro, you got to get a nice car from the police impound lot. James Bond pulls up to the casino in his Pinto signature and the bumper immediately falls off. It's good times. Listen, true wealth whispers. Speaking of which, I wanted the scene 
somewhere in this movie where Bond or Mads or sorry, Le Chiffre gets a card or something like that. And we're nearing the end of the hand and he just whispers, go fish. But truly high stakes. One of the other things worth mentioning, I've talked about Daniel Craig and his input as Bond. This is Craig's first real major film. I think you could argue he was introduced to the, well, some of the masses, the people that saw it, to people in Tomb Raider. And wow. he was in Munich years later, but mm. it feels like 2001's Tomb Raider was the first time we he kind of had a significant role in something that was released to people, but essentially he was an unknown in this. And that's what I really like is that there was a bravery to it. They wanted a new bond. They cast somebody who was not well-known to the masses. The most well-known person in the cast is either Judy Dench as M who returns. Yes. But other than that, it's really just Mads Mikkelsen as the villain. He was, yeah. And he wasn't, he was well-known. So he'd been a, a well-regarded actor in a lot of very well-regarded film. So it's, I was looking him up before, kind of a fascinating career. He didn't have to do the kind of like bargain barrel, like film school films before he got his first big break. You know, he, he wasn't in an episode of Tales from the Crypt, like Daniel uh, Craig, you're saying. Was he really? Yes. Oh, oh boy. Oh boy. Or Tomb Raider, right? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so Mads Mikkelsen is new who is, unfortunately, I guess, kind of typecast as a villain because he has a villainous face. He has a, a beautiful, ugly, dangerous face. You know, like he's the kind of face where if, if he showed up to save you in a dark alley, you'd, you'd like be as scared of him necessarily than, than the guy who's robbing you. He's very good, though. He works well. He is outstanding. And he's very good in this movie because he's a very believable villain and it's a very simple idea he is just a banker he makes things happen so that he makes money but it's a far cry from the 18 different things that had to happen for diamond face and his brother to be a villain in die another day yeah he's just le chiffre is just a normal guy who likes to commit a terrorism once in a while. Not, it's not even that. He's not even like, I don't get the point. I didn't get the sense that he was doing a terrorism because he had terrorism in his heart. No, he likes the money. He needed to do the terrorism because he's doing a Wall Street bets. He's, he's shorted the stock. And then that's why he tries to blow up an airplane, right? So he bought $100 billion worth of Skyplane parent company stock but as shorts right so he's betting essentially that the price of the stock is going to go down rather than up yeah how do you make sure that that happens you do a little bit of the terrorism it's also interesting to me how everything came together there's a cast of ava green as well also not in a lot of things before this in some significant roles after it, but she was also cast sort of as an unknown. She, and she does a phenomenal job. Yeah, she's very good in this. Probably her best work, I would say. I just I haven't seen her in anything else. That's the thing. Like, I remember her being kind of everywhere at the time. And then I think mm -hmm. the problem is 
Kira Knightley was also around at the time, and they have kind of a similar look. The other stuff to mention, the same writers, the director, who was Martin Campbell. This is his best movie by a mile. That is not saying much. Has not directed a lot of quality things, we'll say. Everything from the incredible Ryan Reynolds vehicle, Green Lantern, which of course is what catapulted Ryan Reynolds into superhero fandom and love. He has directed two mediocre Zorro films. Oh, man. He, yeah, his. There's a core memory. But what a weird, but what a weird career. And then suddenly they give him Casino Royale, which they gave to him after The Mask of Zorro and then The Legend of Zorro as really the, the highest profile things he did, neither of which received particularly well, and honestly, neither of which particularly quality filled. But before then, his best thing overall, he is the director of Goldeneye. Which is honestly probably the best Pierce Brosnan film. Yes. I think for that's Bond. A, yeah, a pretty easy sell, I would say. Here's my feeling about that. So I, I found it fascinating. I just wanted to pick Die Another Day because it's it's a movie that it was always just like kind of a comfort. You could always just toss it on and tune out. So when you're having a, you know, when you just need some bubblegum for your mind, toss that on. But it's opened up this whole world of history and questioning things about the, the times and how they were changing. So, for example, Goldeneye, I want to say 1997? 1995. 1995. So even even more to my point, CGI is not what it would then be by the time you get to die another day. So you have to have a director who can direct in the traditional academic sense. Then we get into that weird period where it's very uncanny valley CGI as we would see it now because we have the tools to make it much more believable. And you had some directors who could work with that, some directors who couldn't. But then you've got the same guy now in Casino Royale who did Goldeneye. And there's really not that much. I mean, there is CGI, obviously. I don't think they actually destroyed a building in Venice. But there's very few set pieces that revolve around the use of CGI. So as a quick note on that, CGI, according to Daniel Craig, the only instances of CGI in the film are in fact, yes, the melding of the falling building in Italy to a model. So in Mm -hmm. other words, just kind of combo it to make it look like it's a real object Mm -hmm. and that it's really falling and that it's not just a model. And also removing wires in a lot of the stunt yeah. sequences, in particular the parkour. But other than that, he says there's nothing. I don't don't know if that's entirely true, but I have no reason to disbelieve him. I mean, there's also what we would understand as CGI versus what a, a working man in that industry would consider CGI. There's also CGI as we, the stupid movie viewers, understand it, which is giant robots fighting each other and literally Ian McKellen Gandalf in a big green room talking to tennis balls on sticks versus what somebody who's 
working in the industry would understand as CGI, which is we need to digitally crop out this car or that person, or there's a reflection there, things like that. It's still very traditional filmmaking. It's not reliant on these new technologies. And he's very clearly a director who can very competently direct traditionally. I don't remember a lot about the Zorro movies. Perhaps that will be a a topic for another time because wow, we what a blast from the past. But I don't remember there being anything particularly offensive about them in terms of the direction or anything like that. No. So, you know, why not? Why not give it to him? You know, he's a guy who can do it. He's done a James Bond before. Why not? That's thing the first. Thing the second is, I remember reading a book called How to Make a Billion Dollars at the Box Office or How to Make a Billion Bucks at the Box Office. And it's by two of the guys who wrote, starred in Reno 911, a comedy sketch about the Reno Sheriff's Department which is a takeoff on cops and yet somehow not as insane as actual cops episodes are. But they're screenwriters. And there was a part in that book that said that if there's anything important that you want to make sure stays in your film, the best thing to do is to make it the most CGI expensive, heavy part of that film. Because they are very hard to cut those scenes. Those scenes need to be set up months, years in advance, and they take months, years to finish. So if there's anything really important, make it really expensive and and having to have a whole lot of resources put into it over an extended period of time because it's less likely to get cut. Forgot where I was going with that. (laughs) Fair. I think that could also have influenced the reason why Die Another Day is the way it is. You can't, you have to sort of, I get the feeling that Die Another Day had to maneuver around these resource-intensive set pieces or scenes or things like that. Like, we can't just cut out the hole in the ozone layer, the laser satellite chasing after James Bond. We, we just paid a firm $6 million over six months to do that for us. It's not getting cut. Okay, well, what can we cut? Well, if we cut this part out, then it doesn't make sense. Well, why don't we just say that he's, he's just a different guy? We replaced his bone marrow. He's just a different guy. So another thing that was clawed back for this movie versus the other Bonds, in particular the Pierce Brosnan ones, is despite it still appearing a fair amount, the product placement is lessened Mm. in this movie. So when you're talking about things that were constraints on the production, Die Another Day had a lot of product placement constraints placed on it versus Casino Royale. Now, part of that, too, is what you're talking about. The budget was significantly different. Casino Mm -hmm. Royale, because of a lot of the practical effects and stunts and that sort of thing, it's still definitely not an inexpensive film, but it's less than Die Another Day was, which some of those stunts, some of those sets, and then... A lot of the effects are just kind of burning bunny, especially for 2002 movie when CGI is not cheap, not that it's a whole lot better in 06, but it was used so sparingly that it just didn't contribute to the budget in nearly as significant a way as it did for DAD or dad, as you can call it. Die another day. Yeah, it's, I was 
very happy to see that a lot of this stuff is practical. And we're going to go back to that because it's my favorite part of the film. But how do you make a James Bond movie, quote, on a budget, quote unquote? I wish I had the kind of budget that Casino Royale would have. But how do you do that and still have it be solidly Bond? You know, maybe you have one car, but that car is just a car with a cool glove box. Can we make this work? Yes, we can, in fact. Yeah, and it feels like those constraints have helped a lot of things, too, mm -hmm. in terms of there is still... So during Die Another Day, you mentioned your favorite sequences are when they actually sort of do some spy stuff mm -hmm. and investigation, i.e. when they go to the magic DNA labs that changes you completely. And that's the problem, right? Even though sequences are grounded in what is honestly just something stupid, an idea that simply does not work. Whereas in this movie, there's a fair amount of spy work. And I like that a lot. Bond follows people, not in the most subtle of ways. He is not great at it at points. There is not one moment in the film where Bond does something where you think, oh, that's how he's going to get away with it. Like, he gets, I, every time he's tried to hide, he's been spotted. He tries to do the, the kiss thing in Die Another Day. In Die Another Day, Mr. Kill just goes, oh, you crazy kids, and walks away. In Casino Royale, as you said before, they're doing the kiss thing. They're going, mm, um, oh, James, mm, as the henchmen are walking by. But the henchmen see his little spy guy earpiece. And they're not stupid. They start shooting. Every time he has tried to hide behind a pillar or sneak up on a guy, it completely fails. There's that, but I like the spy stuff in terms of there's a fair amount of investigation to it versus a lot of the other Bond movies where he is looking for known contacts of somebody he has just killed or met. He spends time on computers looking up people he goes to hotel desks and asks about vehicles to find out exactly who someone is and where he can find them. Yep. And it's still very basic stuff. It's still stuff that appears in the other movies. It's just it all melds together here in a very sort of straightforward way. It's still a Bond movie in that it goes from point A to point B rapidly. And efficiently, it's just the way it gets there, there just seems like there was so much more care taken. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I want to talk about a couple of things. So number one, going back to the whole, how do you do a great Bond film on a budget without being reliant on these things? One is hire people who can pull it off. So Daniel Craig can absolutely pull off Bond as he is written here. Mads Mikkelsen can absolutely pull off being just a, a weird, a weird finance bro, just a, a savant who's not super care, you know, like he's charismatic because he has a bunch of money. But if he didn't have a bunch of money, he'd just be a weird dude that you, you don't want to really talk to. He's just a weird guy. And he's not really a super genius either. He's just got the money to try. And then you have in the scene that kind of kicks this all, this movie off, the scenes in Madagascar where he's going after what we soon find out is uh, just a guy who makes bombs, like tiny little rinky-dink, two sticks of dynamite taped together bombs, who happens to be Stéphane Foucan, who was one of the original sort of group 
of people who helped introduce parkour, free running, to the masses. And this movie also helps bring parkour and free running, that idea that you are kind of one with your urban environment, that you displace yourself within the environment and their, their obstacles can be advantages, that kind of thing. It's the runny, jumpy, skippy, vaulty stuff. This movie kind of was also a bellwether in that sense because now you can't get away with it. Now you have Michael Scott yelling parkour in the office, right? But before, this was, this was the thing. Before that, there was maybe one documentary, I think possibly even the sequel documentary. But there was Jump London, which I think you can find on Vimeo, but I can't find anywhere else, really. Jump London was just a documentary following Stéphane Poucan and crew around as they did these things without wires, without whatever, whatever. So you, you look at yourself and you say, okay, I want to have a cool, exciting chase scene. I'm going to hire the guy who can do cool, exciting chases without a wire. We're going to put a wire on him because insurance purposes, but how much easier is that than if you had to train somebody and then you had to shoot it in such a way that it looks good versus you're just pointing a film at Stéphane Foucault. You're, you're pointing course, a camera at Stéphane Foucault. Of the instance of parkour was the House of Pain song, Jump Around. And eventually it would come up again in a seminal work by Criss Cross, Jump Jump. But Bond would meld those two things. And it's a thing of beauty. And he's not the best at it. Clearly this dude who, this bomb maker, who is played by Stéphane Foucault, one of the founding people of Freerunning, is so much better at it than he is. And that's your first kind of indication that this, this is not Pierce Brosnan Bond. This is not tie him up to a rack and, and shoot a laser beam between his legs Bond. This is... Well, more just that he's not the best at everything. It's not a... Just two. It's a, it's a guy chasing another dude. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever done blank. I'm already the best at it. And jokes aside, in terms of the parkour and the movement and that sort of thing, it inspired everything. You know, there was video games. So Assassin's Creed was in production at this point, but hadn't come out yet. Mirror's Edge would come out in 2008, only a mm -hmm. couple of years later. A game centered around parkour as a traversal method. Casino Royale kind of did it first and brought it to the masses. And it did a lot of the things we've talked about in terms of action movie conventions. It's funny to go from my discussion of an O2 action movie to the discussion of an O6 action movie. There's only four years in between, mm -hmm. but it's night and day how they are filmed, how the scene progression works and the framing of every sequence. It is completely different. Nothing is similar. Bond fights for the most part, like a normal person. There's not sort of a melding of styles that there is in, in Die Another Day. In particular, for example, the sword fighting sequences where he just kind of moves between different sword fighting styles and stances versus this, where most of the fights are very visceral. It's a lot of close up stuff. Bond takes punishment that we see yeah. on his body. Yeah, I was later. just thinking that. <laughs> he bleeds. He gets hurt. Yeah, it's not the same. It doesn't feel like the same movie. And in a lot of ways, it is 
constructed as a film. It is constructed as a movie. It just happens to be a movie that has James Bond in it. And a lot of that is the main focus or main portion of main set of reasons why I think this movie is really good and it's well regarded is that it is a movie first. It works as a standalone Mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. If this was the first movie ever of this James Bond character, Mm -hmm. it is an excellent vehicle to that being a character, but it could work on its own. And I look at a lot of movies now, Star Wars to me is one of the ultimate examples of this. Mm. Star Wars productions, in particular, the television stuff on Disney plus, but the movies as well are constructed in a way that they have to be Star Wars movies or Mm -hmm. TV shows, not they have to be functional television or film productions. No, it has to be Star Wars and pigeonholing it into a template that has just been run into the ground. Marvel, by the way, also perfectly guilty of this. I don't know why I picked Star Wars first, but. Well, they're both owned by the mouse, so. Yeah, it's also probably because Star Wars has been running for so long. It has just been, Mm -hmm. just been ground into a fine paste at this point. Almost as long as Bond. Yeah, you look at the stuff that works for it. And there's Star Wars Andor, which is an excellent show. It is a great show. It is not people's favorite quote unquote Star Wars because it doesn't fall into the same trappings, but that's what makes it good and actually made it competent. Mandalorian, another great example. First season, great TV series, works as a standalone. After that, oh boy, let's throw every Star Wars thing we can throw into it. Yip-de-doo. Star Trek can fall into that and has in the past. I'm not going to count that on my bingo card because it wasn't specifically Star Trek, the movie that you mentioned. This is a Bond movie that steps outside of all of the things. And what's weird is we mentioned it earlier, the stuff that is required, quote unquote, in a Bond movie is stuff that sticks out like a sore thumb in this. Yep. And part of that was the fatigue as well. And I guess that's a great reason to why I brought up Star Wars and Marvel is at a certain point, those trappings, you just get sick of them. And I love Bond. I used to always see Bond films with my brother. I used to always go to Bond movies in theater and I used to just love watching them, that kind of thing. But at a certain point, it just becomes too much. They just, it all melds together. And that's part of what makes it disposable. I think if, if Die Another Day wasn't a James Bond movie, it would still kind of be a mediocre film, but Mm. nobody ever would have seen it or anything like that. It's just not a movie, quote unquote. This is a movie. This is a film. Agreed. It is a film and it is also the setup to another film, which I think is probably the, the worst part of this movie is the setup for the sequel. The squeak will, if you will. Yeah, maybe. Once, what, so uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about is Le Chiffre and the villains and stuff. The henchmen who are on Le Chiffre's payroll, there's really only one who's like your typical sort of James Bond henchman guy, like on the way to the, the big boss. And that's the Dimitrios character who is very typically, you know, he's got a wine, women, and song, you know, he's hanging out in the Bahamas and he's blah, 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 blah. 
he's confident though. Like I give him credit. He's, he's more confident than most Bond underlings that he's got to fight in terms of he knows he's being followed. He's able to get the jump on Bond, which again goes back to Craig and people working on this wanting to humanize the character a little more, but continue. Yeah, no, it's, it's even the henchmen are not just like, oh, Mr. Kill, you know, it, they're just guys. They're just guys who do this for a living. And if you've gotten to this level, you're probably pretty good. So the first guy, Dimitrio, sends Stefan Foucan, forerunner of free running, was the first guy that Dimitrios sets up. Le Chiffre is not happy about, you know, losing this guy, but he doesn't just shoot Dimitrios in the face, because why would you? He's, it's not his fault, and he's got a reputation to protect. He's going to send another guy who is also extremely, extremely competent. We, I, don't, I don't think we ever know his name. I don't think he says anything either. I think he's just the guy who has a job and he's got to go blow up the plane. And he almost does it. There are a couple of sort of little James Bond tropes that prevent him from doing it, but otherwise it is very plausible that he's going to pull it off. Le Chiffre himself is not even a big baddie. He's just the biggest baddie that we, the audience, in some ways, and certainly James Bond and MI6 as people existing in this world, Le Chiffre is the biggest bad. He's not even, he's not even in the same league as the people who are actually pulling the strings. Big boys, we are led to believe. Now, that comes up in the squeakwill quantum of solace. The end of this one where he confronts one of the main baddies who had planned everything in, yo, Mr. White, the end of the movie. Yeah, but I mean, Le Chiffre is just, it's the banality of evil. It's grounding it in realism. And keep in mind, this is 2006. This is dot-com bubble around the turn of the millennium. This is hedge funds. This is subprime mortgages. This is two years before 2008 financial crisis, but you're starting to get those. It's Bernie Madoff. It's Edgar Jones. It's these con men mm. who are playing with other people's money and getting very, very rich off of it who have no consequences. Turns out, if you're not that big, there are, in fact, consequences. So Le Chiffre has, because of Bond's inserting himself into, into their business, he's lost $100 million, which for a big bad villain, like, who cares? That's pocket change. I, I, I don't even keep that kind of small, small change on my person. But to him, that's quite a little bit of money. And the worst part is he's playing with other people's money to try and grift a little bit more for himself. He's just a guy. He's just a weird guy who's not socially very good. You know, he's like, oh, can we please just get back to playing poker? Blah, blah, blah. He's a dude with an asthma inhaler who's good at math. That's it. And he's not even, I, I got the sense when he's doing that torture scene where Daniel Craig is in the nude and he's, he's whipping him in, a, in very masculine places. We get the sense that, you know, the sheep is supposed to be this big bad guy and he's in control, but... There's really nothing he can do. He needs, he's lost a bond. He's lost a whole bunch of money. There's a lot of very, very motivated people who are going to come after him for that money. He's in trouble. So while, yes, it seems like he's very much in charge while he's got James Bond tied to a chair, that scene 
I've forgotten how that scene ends, and I, I guess I won't spoil it, but Le Chiffre is not the biggest fish in the pond. Not even close. Mm. He's just a guy. He's just a dude with an inhaler, which kind of goes nowhere. No, it's never really established or brought up. I mean, I guess they use it to track him once, but, you know, if he's got something that he has to put in his mouth regularly, I would have thought that as a super spy, there might be a, a little bit of an extra easy way to deal with this bad guy. I'm just saying. He's just a dude who, who has asthma. Sucks to his asthma. And he's not even present for a third of the movie. And yet he is the de a defining characteristic of this movie. It's his movie as much as it is James Bond's. This also kicks off a new trend for Bond movies, which is, I like to think of it as the reverse Star Trek. The odd-numbered films are good. The even-numbered films are not great. Mm. Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, which is probably, I think, it's tough to argue it's not the worst of the Craig Bond films. I guess he could make a case for Spectre, which followed a good Bond film in Skyfall. And then we have No Time to Die, which I haven't got around to watching yet, but it seems fairly well regarded. I'm a busy man. Well, no, Sky. so Skyfall's in there. No Time to Die was the one that came out during the pandemic, right? 2021, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. Like, at least I kind of remember most of the Brosnan movies. It helps that there are, are few of them, so there's four. The only one I kind of, I remember enough about each one of them that they are distinct movies. I remember Casino Royale very, very well in delightful ways in that, you know, I don't remember everything, so I can still be surprised, but I remember when I saw it, and I remember it being a good, enjoyable time and not very much a slog to get through. This movie is two and a half hours long. You do start yeah. to feel it at the end, but it did not feel as long as Die Another Day, which just felt long. Which has a weird effect in that it's more rewatchable mm. because you don't have to pay attention to it or anything. I mean, die another day. Sorry to clarify. Casino Royale has, you, you want to pay attention. It's well made enough. It kind of draws you to it. It's one of those films that die another day. You're flipping through the channels. You catch it halfway through mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah, I'll leave this on while I vacuum or. Yeah, that's exactly it. Whatever. That is exactly, exactly. Casino it. Royale, you flip to it, you're halfway through. Your choices are either you want to sit down and watch the rest of it because you're like, oh, I remember this, this part. I'm going to sit down and watch the rest of it. Or you, in your head, you make a note. It's like, oh man, I got to rewatch this. I have the same sort of opinion of Skyfall, which I think is one of the better mm -hmm. Bond movies as well, too. It is very good. I remember significant amounts of it. I remember when I first saw it, that sort of thing. The other two of the Craig era are almost entirely forgettable. Quanta, I, I, could, I couldn't remember. I saw Quantum of Solace. The only thing I remember is that it's something about eco-terrorism. Yeah. I don't even think I saw Spectre. And then I saw Skyfall because one, the, the theme song exploded and was everywhere. And two, it was supposed to be like the best bomb film ever, which it's it was all right. But, Javier yeah. Bardem is excellent in it, but that's a discussion mm -hmm. for another day. Yeah. And possibly, who knows, someday, probably another fine new pick. We discussed this, by the way. We're going to end up watching Quantum Solace probably after this. It's not going to be an episode. No. No, I don't really, 
I don't want to talk about it. I remember what happens from seeing this movie. And I remember a lot of what I disliked about Quantum of Solace because Mm. of what happens in this movie and because of that progression, Mm -hmm. which is not nearly as well done and becomes a lot more messy. Yeah, it's going to be one of those movies that we put on and do the vacuuming rather than. If Casino Royale is Chris Claremont's The Phoenix Saga, Quantum of Solace is the Chris Claremont retcon every member of the Hellfire Club who was introduced in the Phoenix Saga comic. Yep. So for the the baby nerdlings who are are not steeped in the this tea stew of being a big, big, big nerd. Dorcas Maximus. Like Dorcas me. Maximus, like the uneven flow and and hence don't have your own podcast about it because there's just so much in your head. You have to get it out. You have to get it out. And it it can't just be talking to me all the time. It can't just do that. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> I gotta get a word in edgewise somewhere. Sorry, what's that entire podcast about X-Files mythology? Listen, you, you, that was my one show. That was my one Dorcas Maximus show. And then I had, and then you, and then you were like, oh, I think I'll pick X-Files. I'm Abby. Thank you for joining me. So verdict is in Casino Royale. Good movie. Die another day. I, I honestly, I would maybe say watch it, but like you can do chores at the same time. It doesn't even feel like the same series. It's so it doesn't even feel like the same series. It does kind of feel like the same movie in a lot of ways. And it's the same writers and it's got it's they both have torture scenes. They both have blah, blah, blah. So to give you some credit, those are two really good picks because they're the same series and it just it doesn't feel Mm -hmm. like it at all. And it's the same writers. And what I think is interesting is in terms of similarities to our last finding pick, which was Alien. Mm. This movie is also sort of, it's scaled down. It is not a high, big budget CGI fest, which is why I am choosing a high budget CGI fest. And the next fine new pick, we're going back to science fiction. Okay. We're going to watch Ed of Tomorrow. Really? Yes. The Tom Cruise. Yes. Also known as Live, Die, Repeat for people who have read the superior book. Not to mention the better title, but apparently they just didn't want the word die somewhere in whatever. Anywho, that is the next fine you pick. As mentioned in our previous episode, which was a variety episode following up the X-Files of top three, bottom three. The next episode, next Monday, is going to be a variety episode as well. I'm going to be doing something a little different it's going to be another solo one i am going to talk about because i need to get this out there armored core 6 mm. and my love of it armored core 6 fires rubicon is a, is game. a video game mm-hmm. yes released last year at the height of the craziness that was 2023 in gaming so we have that to look forward to you will notice however that the variety episode is now no longer on thursdays we're going to once a week yes As mentioned, so that will be next Monday. The Monday after will be the follow-up top three, bottom three. The rest of development. It's about the rap group. Mm. Oh, man. Oh, man. And Tennessee and, oh, 
Wow. I didn't know you would. They weren't really a rap group, but it's, anyway. a, it's about, it's about me and my it's family. So I was going to do it for this episode of fine. You pick on Casino Royale. Any sort of closing thoughts? Good movie. Enjoyed it. I'm just going to say it right now. If, if Edge of Tomorrow, Live, Die, Repeat is a real stinker, then we're doing Die Another Day again as my uh, fine you pick. So nope. just, uh, yeah, Die Another Day, uh, always my fine you pick. Best movie ever. Best theme song ever. It had a better theme song than Casino Royale. Yeah, that's something we didn't that, mention, too, is the opening here day. is very different. This is the first time day. we have an opening that's not just nude girls dancing. Da. They do an animated sequence featuring Bond and some of the Bond essentially in action things. They also have, if you're really into cards and their interpretation, they kind of spoil Vesper's role in this. But yeah, it's this was a different movie. Again, same series feels completely different. Probably the biggest departure from one Bond group to another. I, I look back and I think that not counting Lazenby, but the move from Connery to Moore was kind of lateral. Dalton was a little more action oriented. And then Brosnan, and it's weird because Brosnan is not, he's not dissimilar from the character he played in what probably got him the role in James Bond and the character he played in the 80s series that I can't remember his name of all of a sudden, which is funny because uh, Remington Steele, there we go. He is not dissimilar to rule the character in Remington Steele, but cranked up to 11. And then we kind of go back almost to a Connery-esque, just a dude in Casino Royale. I am the uneven flow. I am also just a dude who watches and way too much science fiction and then does episodes of this show and then subsequently spends hours the next day or the day before or the weeks before on Wikipedia or terrible fandom sites, which are just full of ads, by the way, fandom, the worst company. Anywho, I'm, I'm not happy. Expand it. No sponsorship from fandom. I'm happy. I'm Abby. You certainly were. I certainly am. If you want to support the podcast, feel free to rate and review us on your platform of choice. If you want to email the podcast, upnerdpodcasts at gmail.com. You can find us on X at upnerdpodcasts. You can find us on Blue Sky now. You can follow us on Blue oh, yeah. Sky now as I slowly figure it out. Also, Up Nerd Podcasts, and you can find us on Facebook, Up Nerd Podcasts. Plural. Yes. Because there's many of them. Yes. And also the singular form of that was taken, so. That too, at least on some things, yeah. And mm -hmm. then to kind of top it all off, here is Abby beatboxing Die Another Day for the next six hours. No, just yeah. kidding. That's not going to happen. We did make it way past to the nine episodes, though. So, have a good day, everybody. Well, my feet